One of the things that was common in antiquity, especially in this period of time we're talking about, were famines. Right? Famines happened a lot. Claudius happens to be the emperor of Rome at this time. The poor guy had like five famines to deal with in his reign. So it was, it was really, really common. And typically they were just dealt with as a part of life. But this one was especially significant. Um, part of which is because it did affect Judea. Right? So the church is, is started in Jerusalem, in Judea. It spreads across the Roman Empire. And wherever the church goes, their experience was different. You know, churches were planted in different kinds of communities. Different ethnic groups were involved. Uh, the, the number, the concentration of the number of Jews in the community would be different. And so they had different experiences. Um, they, they almost all would experience some kind of persecution, but persecution of different forms. Um, some cases it would be from the local Roman government. Uh, other cases, the Romans didn't care, but the local Jewish population would resist them. Or in other places, like in Ephesus, it was a commercial issue. It was a business issue, and the business community very strongly opposed them. So for different reasons, different churches dealt with different levels of persecution. The church in Jerusalem, they got everything, right? Because it's the, it's the epicenter of traditional Orthodox Jewish thinking, so that's where the greatest resistance from the traditional Jewish, and it wasn't completely, wasn't the whole Jewish community, but the leadership of the Jewish community very strongly opposed the church. Um, in terms of the Romans, you know, the Romans cared about two things, you know, keeping the peace and collecting taxes peacefully. And in Jerusalem, the church was identified with problems in both of those areas. So justifiably or not, the Romans weren't happy with the church. And just generally, the church in Jerusalem had a really rough time with persecution, right? So there are various issues. Each church is different, which is like today. We sometimes make the mistake of thinking that that early church, the first century church, was like this monolithic entity and everybody experienced, no, we, just like we have different churches today, churches in Vietnam is obviously experiencing radically different circumstances to ours. So there's variation, there's variety, even though we all serve the same Lord. And that's kind of the same situation. Other churches had doctrinal issues, some had personal issues, Corinth would be included in that. So all kinds of different issues. But the churches sure still shared this same faith, right? So when famine hits Judea, because the persecution they faced in Jerusalem and because of the circumstances of the Jerusalem church, the famine was especially strong there, all right? Um, another thing that kind of factors into this is that the church in Judea was made up of an especially large percentage of widows and orphans, people who were looking to the church for help, for food, for financial help. That, you know, amped the problem up. And on top of all that, uh, the 4th century a Roman historian, Morosius, notes that the famine that hits Judea happens to hit at the very same time that the Romans are invading the British Isles. So the, as far as the government's concerned, all their resources are going that way, and they don't want to bother with that way. And so there was no help to be found there. So all of this kind of creates this perfect storm where the Jerusalem church was in a real world of hurt. And so Paul is communicating with different churches that he has planted in the eastern Mediterranean basin to simply raise help for the church in Jerusalem. And that's where the chapter starts. So let's just read the first couple of verses again. We're going to go through the chapter really quickly. Uh, now, brethren, Paul writes, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Macedonia is up north. 
just right on the border of modern Greece. It's actually Macedonia on both sides of the border. We can get into some Greek politics if you want. Um, but that's northern Greece, right? This grace has been given to the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, that's their suffering, a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So what's Paul doing here? Paul's going to be encouraging the Corinthians to pony up and help the church in Jerusalem, right? So he begins by talking about the church in Macedonia. Man, those Macedonians really came through. Is Paul manipulating? Yes. Godly manipulation, but yes. You see, if you know anything about the history of this part of the world, there's a big rivalry there between Achaia, which is the region where Corinth and Athens is, and Macedonia. They just, they're always like at one another, right? You talk to a Greek about Macedonia, of course, the first thing that comes to the mind is that famous Macedonian Alexander. You thought he was Greek, right? No. He was Macedonian. If you're talking to Greeks, if you're talking to non-Greeks, oh yeah, he was, he was Greek. He was Alexander the Great. Great ruler. Greek, right? But among Greeks, it's actually closer, the terminology is actually closer to Alexander the Big Shot. Right? That's what the word actually means. Alexander the big shot. He was a big deal. He was a megalomaniac, right? Even today, this rivalry is still alive and well. Right? In football, soccer season, when the Athens fans go north, the cops go with them. I'm serious. The cops go with them. They get to the stadium. They make two columns. The fans come in. They watch the football game. The fans come and they leave, right? During football season, if you're from Athens, you don't go to Macedonia. You don't go north because it's not nice. I beat you up there. So there's this rivalry that goes back thousands of years. Paul's playing off that, right? After all, the Macedonians, it came through. And they're not rich like you Corinthians. We've talked about this a lot, right? The Corinthians had a lot of money. They're, they're just kind of farming people up there. They don't have a lot of money. But boy, they really shone through. Now, how about you guys? Okay. And so he turns it then. He turns it. Uh, consequently, we urge Titus, as he had previously, verse 6, made a beginning. So he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness, all that stuff the Corinthians were so proud of in their church, their swinging church, right? Just as you are so good at all that stuff, I really expect you to step up, right? So Paul is laying out this argument by first comparing them to what's going on in Macedonia and then calling them through some very nice encouragement, we might say, to, um, to participate. And then in verse 9, he shifts to kind of a more rational argument behind this request that he's making, and he's been making. Verse 9, he says, For I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, rather you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through you, that you through his poverty might become rich. 
And what is it? He refers to Jesus taking that whole equation that's so much part of our worldly thinking and turning it upside down, which goes right back to the last chapter. Remember the last chapter we talked about the word repentance? That was a setup for this chapter. We talked about the word repentance, and we said that in our minds, we tend to associate the word repentance with sin, as we need to. But the word repentance is any, ser excuse me, any serious change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. It doesn't just have to be sin. So it can also refer to our worldview, which is exactly how Jesus presented it in Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 5. He talked about repentance, and then rather talking about sin, he went on to the Beatitudes, which is all about attitude and worldview. So what Paul was establishing in the previous chapter was that we, as, as much as we need to repent of our sin, and we do, we also need to repent of our worldview. And the worldview says what? Take care of yourself first. The worldview says what? Take, you know, make sure that you got yours, and then if you have any left over, worry about somebody else. Okay? That's the worldview. Well, Paul is saying here, if you look at Jesus, he turned that worldview completely upside down. And his entire focus was on others. That is contrary to our worldview. That is absolutely contrary to our worldview. You know, you talk about generosity, and Paul's talking about an offering. That's what this is all about. You talk about generosity um, based on the people that, that crunch the numbers. Um, the United States is the most generous nation in the world, based as a percentage of our gross domestic product, which is probably as good a number as any, based on a percentage of a gross national product, the United States gives through all avenues, individuals, foundations, trusts, all everything. We make charitable donations at almost twice the rate of the next most generous nation. Second most generous nation is Canada, right? We're almost just barely shy of being twice what their rate is. Our giving, our giving as a percentage of our gross national product is equal to less than one and one half percent. That's our giving for charitable purposes. Less than one and one half percent. How does that compare to Jesus? One and one half percent. Point zero one five. Less than two percent. How does that worldview compare to Jesus? That's Paul's point. Jesus gave everything. And he's calling on the church to move towards Jesus' model. That's what it is, this earth. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. But Paul does say, Paul does say in verse 11 and 12, he says, but now finish doing this. Actually, I should back up a little bit. He says uh, in verse uh, verse 10, now I give my opinion in this matter. That's a really important statement because what is Paul not doing? He's not laying down some kind of a law. He's not telling, I'm going to tell you what to do and you have to do it or you're out of line. He's not giving you my opinion. I'm sharing with you what I think, right? It's my opinion. That as you abound in everything, this is back in verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 8, uh, I'm not speaking as a command, but through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for her sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich, and I give my opinion in this matter, for this it is to your advantage, always to our advantage to follow Christ's model. We're always benefit if we follow his model. It's to your advantage who were the first to begin it a year ago, and not only to do this, but the desire to do it, but now finish it. See, the Corinthians had already started this project, but they hadn't finished it. 
Paul's saying, I want you to be strong finishers. You started to give. The Macedonians took the hint. They did a super job. Now I want you to finish well, okay? And then verse 12, he says, The readiness is present, acceptable according to what a man has, not to what he does not have. Paul's entirely reasonable in this. He's not asking for anybody to do more than they could, right? Top down to verse 14. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. Key phrase there in verse 14, at the present time. You know, we are so quick to assume things won't change. We're so quick to feel like we got it figured out. We're doing well. It'll always be. Paul said, don't assume that. Just as easily as today at Corinthians, you may be in great shape. Tomorrow, you may be the ones asking for help. And you're in a lot better place, not only to ask other churches for help, but you're in a much better place to ask God for help if you've been faithful in following the model that he demonstrated in his son. So Paul is laying out this very rational argument for what he's asking them to do, right? He's saying, I'm expecting you to be generous. Now, is there a biblical standard? People ask this question. Is there some kind of a biblical standard? Obviously, it's not one and one half percent. In the church, we've typically talked about the tithe as a means of giving, right? Is that law? No. Paul's made it very clear here. He's sharing his opinion. He's not laying down some kind of a law. But this principle of giving a tithe, 10%, goes all the way back to Abraham, which is before the law. It's been practiced by the people of God as a discipline. And that's how I present it. And this is how Pastor Joyce and I have practiced our giving over the years. We've given 10% as a starting point. Now, that's not a law. If, if, if we wake up on, on Monday morning and go, oh, we didn't put it in the offering. We don't like freak out because you know God can be mad at us or something. That's not how it works. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline because one, it meets a very real need. We just heard about it in Vietnam. We're trying to buy toilets. Right? We're actively involved in helping work in, in Greece through Bridges Humanitarian. We've just started getting involved in helping uh, carry the cure as it goes up north. There's always opportunities, there's always needs, but for the church to be able to respond, there have to be finances. So Joyce and I, as a practice, have given 10% of our income to the church. Primarily, as a discipline, this is my way of reminding myself that all I have is from him, and that I'm wholly dependent on him for every dime of it. At the present time, I'm doing well. Tomorrow, things may change. So I want to make sure that my attitude is right. And the picture of that, of course, goes all the way back, you know, to, and he quotes it in verse 15. It says, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have a lack. He's drawing a comparison back to when they collected the manna. That's where that phrase is from. God always cares for his people. So I know I just covered a lot right there, but the point is this. The point is this. The kingdom view that Paul is presenting to the Corinthians is to serve others, give to others, love others, and trust in God to take care of you. That's what Joyce and I have practiced our, our entire married life. And God has shown himself incredibly, incredibly faithful. And that's what he's presenting to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul. Verse 16, Paul turns to the matter of the care and the use of the gift 
that Macedonia and the Achaean churches had given. And frankly, this is where it really starts to speak to us, especially in light of, of what we do today, right? Verses 16 through 18, he says this, But thanks be to God who put the same earnestness in behalf of the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's gone to you of his own accord, and we have sent along with him, and they didn't name the guy, I wish it did, it'd be so much easier. We've sent along with him the brothers whose fame in the gospel has spread through all the churches, right? So what Paul is talking about? He's talking about a team he collected. He didn't just send one person. He's talking about a team he collected. Titus was involved. Another brother and scholars have said, maybe it was Apollos. Some have suggested John Mark. Uh, Trophimus is another name. He shows up in the account. Different names he suggests. These are people that Paul sent. Why? Accountability. We sometimes forget that, you know, the same rules that govern responsible handling of funds in the world apply in the church. So rather than send one person, Paul sends a group. So there's accountability. He sends a group to Macedonia. They collect the funds in Macedonia. And he goes on through the chapter. I'll let, you, I'll let you guys finish reading yourself. He goes on through it to ensure them that in the handling of funds that have been collected for Jerusalem, that they're all going to Jerusalem. Nothing's being skimmed off the top. Paul's very careful to make that absolutely clear, right? Look at verse 20. Taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. And here's the verse we started with. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. What's he saying? He's saying we owe it to you, Corinthians, just as we in this church, and I speak of Pastor Joyce and myself and the church board, owe it to you to act in such a way with every dime that comes into the church that is honorable. And that word means morally good and practically good, effective in the handling and distribution of funds. Why? For accountability's sake. That's why we have meetings like we're having today. That's why we're going to put a financial statement in your hand. This is why, by the way, I get really excited about church board business meetings. A lot of people recoil from that, like, oh, what could be more boring than a church sitting around talking about its business? To me, what could be more exciting? What could be more exciting than a bunch of people, the people of God, getting together and looking at what they've done in the past year and asking the question, how did we do? And then asking the question, how can we do better? At fulfilling the commission that God has placed on us as a body of believers. Yeah, um... It's a little nerve-wracking for me because I'm being held to account. None of us really like that. None of us like to have to have that chat with the boss. But we have to have that chat. There has to be accountability because what? That is honorable. That is both morally and functionally the good thing to do. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here, right? So if you read through the end, and I'll let you guys read it on your own because I don't want to be going on too long here. If you read verses 22 and 23, you'll notice Paul did this. Number one, he had more than one person handle the money. We do that here, right? That's just an example, the offerings. Two people counted. Two people signed a book. Okay. He avoided handling the finances himself. I do my best to distance from it. I'm still involved with it. If we 
can get a responsible volunteer. I won't have to touch it. I just as soon not be involved, right? I just as not be involved, right? He let the church know who was handling the money, right? Typically, Alex and I count it, right? But it's always somebody that we know, a responsible member, right? And he made sure that those who were handling the money were themselves of good repute. Here he lists Titus and a bunch of other names. That is how we handle things so that the one in the world can point at us and say, you didn't do right. Because we can explain how we did things. Right? That's why we have the kind of meetings that we have today. So it's a really, really contextualized message that Paul shares in this chapter. It really speaks to them doing business well. It speaks to them morphing from a worldly worldview to a kingdom worldview and doing it in such a way that they cannot be accused of wrongdoing, but rather that the church's testimony remains strong. And in the process of doing that, he provides us with really sound guidance for doing our business today. Because people are people, right? And the same kind of problems they could have had then are the same kind of problems we can have now. So he put the safeguards in place that we do so that they won't. But here's the part about the chapter that encourages me the most. And it really has nothing to do with the finances at all. I look at the church that's described throughout the Corinthian correspondence, especially in these last two chapters, and I see a church that is right in the middle of the real world. This is a church in Corinth that at this time is doing quite well. But there's news of another church that's not doing well at all. And other churches that are somewhere in the middle, and they're working collectively to try to respond to the church that's hurting. That's a real-world situation. The church has never functioned or existed in a bubble. Yeah, we are separate from the world by the nature of the fact that we are born again and indwelt by the Spirit of God that makes us separate from the world. But we live in the midst of the world. And the church that is the true and living church has never been immune to that, has never been isolated from that, but rather find ourselves right in the middle of it, which is exactly what Jesus did. That's what the incarnation means. Jesus came and dwelt among us, and he has placed us as a church among the world, in the world, but not of it. That's our task, and this is an example of it in real world, real world terms. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, that you take a situation that is... Um, well, unique. It was unique, Father. Um, there's a couple church in need, church can help, Father. And Paul's going through the process of, of instructing and teaching one church uh, how to respond, Lord. But I think we find in that, if we look at it carefully at all, Lord, really good instruction for us, Lord, to know there's a right way to do things, and we need to do things the right way. There's a generosity, Father, that should characterize the people of God. And then mostly, Father, as we do this, Father, as we saw God glorified in their response, as we faithfully serve and respond to you, Lord, you'll be glorified in what we do. That is our goal, Lord, that you might be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.